All right, we are going to dig into uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we really didn't get very far last week as far as the text is concerned because we spent most of our time on introductory material. But today we're going to uh, leap into the text. So let's bow our heads together. Again, I'm glad to see you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It's, it's a cold but beautiful day, and for that we're grateful. Thank you for the health that you gave to us that allowed us to arise this morning after our rest to go about the responsibilities that are ours on a Wednesday and then to be here at the noontime hour to fellowship, to have a good meal, and to study your word. I thank you for all who are here. Pray your richest blessing upon each one. Uh, Father, watch over us and keep us strong and healthy. Keep us safe as we go back to our responsibilities of the day in just a little while. We already look forward to the Lord's Day, praying that it will be a great day here at First Baptist and at all the churches of our community. And just pray now that you'll open the eyes of our hearts today, that we will see what you want us to see in this first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We love you, we adore you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, the first four chapters of Luke can be called a prologue, preface, introduction, um, we barely touched on it last week, but it is as if it were a scientific report of the day. That's the way it's styled, uh, like a scientific report of the first century, and good reason for that. Luke would be considered, of course, he's a physician, but would be considered a scientist or a man familiar with science, a learned man who did much research on the life of Jesus, and uh, so we're, we're blessed to have these first four verses, so I want to read them, and then we'll spend a few moments talking about them, and then we're going to head on to verse 5. So here we go. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So as we look back at verse 1, Luke lets us know that he is not the first to write about Jesus, but certainly with his knowledge and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gives us one of the most important um, writings of the life of Jesus, along with Matthew, uh, Mark, and John. When he uses the word fulfilled in verse 1, he is talking about Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And though Luke was a Gentile, he is not unfamiliar with Old Testament prophecy, having studied and researched and interviewed and prepared his heart for the writing of, of this gospel. In verse 2, when he talks about just as they were handed down to us, the words handed down would give us a picture of oral reports or oral tradition. In his research, I have no doubt but that, well, he really tells us that he listened to, questioned, interviewed, 
researched people who had been with Jesus, people who had seen Jesus, people who had heard Jesus, and he puts all that down into writing. So he gives attention to the oral reports and the oral testimony that has been given to him by others. The other day I was talking to uh, someone in our on our church staff who had gone on Sunday afternoon to his grandfather's house and he had a child in school who's doing a project that caused her to want to interview her great-grandfather. And so they, they had intended the, the whole thing to last about 30 minutes, but about three hours later they brought it to a conclusion. And he said it was probably the greatest visit we have ever had with this particular member of our, of our family as he just talked and talked and talked about things that he had experienced, things that he had, had been through. And so they recorded it, and uh, that will be precious not only for this school project that this girl has to do, but it, that will be precious for the, the generations to come. I hope maybe you have got something like that from those who've gone before you. Or if not, um, you know what you could do is just put something on, uh, just record something and pass it on to your grandchildren or your children. Just talk about yourself. Uh, they'll be glad you did. They may not have thought of that, or they may not be living where they can do that. But um, that would be a precious thing to pass on to your children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren. So he talked to eyewitnesses. No doubt that would have included some of the apostles, others who saw and heard Jesus. This is storytelling and interviews. Perhaps one of the apostles would have said, I remember the day that we did this, Jesus did this, he said this, we went there, he did this miracle. And can you imagine the richness of that as Luke listened and and, uh, took notes? And we have the product of that in the Gospel of Luke. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about careful investigation. Now, he's talking like an historian. Because really, that that is what Luke Luke did. He he was... um, a Renaissance man before the Renaissance had ever been heard of. Um, he was a physician. He was a scientist. He was an historian and a researcher and a writer. And a lot of things tied up in, in Dr. Luke. But he talked to eyewitnesses, did careful investigation, and we have the benefit of that investigation. He wrote what he calls an orderly account meaning more than just it's in chronological order. It means more than that. The term means easy to follow. I like that. I like that. I like things that are easy to follow, don't you? Particularly if I'm putting something together that was made in China. I want to, you know, I want to know as simply as possible how to do it. One, two, three. Well, here is... An orderly account that is easy for us to follow of the life of Jesus. He puts it all together in a way that presents the whole picture from beginning to ascension or pre-birth to ascension. Theophilus, the one to whom he writes, 
He says, I'm writing this to assure you that you may have confidence that what you have been taught is true. Uh, what I have told you is true, Theophilus, and it is trustworthy, and you can count on it. And that, that was important. You can imagine living in that day um, when Christians fell into disfavor and they were persecuted and hounded and and maybe there were times when someone like Luke would have said, well, you know, is it worth it? Should I, can I even trust what I've been taught? How do I know for certain that it really happened? And so Luke is saying to Theophilus, it's all true. Every word of it's true. And I'm giving it to you in order to give you assurance. Assurance that you can believe what you've been told. So with that introduction or preface or prologue, whichever title you want to give it, I want us to go now and and meet the family of the one we will know as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And no, John the Baptist did not start the First Baptist Church. <laughs> but he's very important to us. And so we're going to read about him in just a moment. We're going to read about the birth of John the Baptist being foretold. And that comes in the light of something that is significant for us to remember. Until now, what Luke writes about, God has been silent. In regard to Israel, God has been silent For 400 years. That's a long time. How old is America? We think of 1776 as being ancient history. Well, God had not spoken to Israel in over 400 years. His last words to Israel are found in Malachi. If you want to turn there or listen, it's Malachi chapter 4, beginning with verse 2. And here is what God said through the prophet Malachi. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Are you familiar with the way little calves frolic. Isn't it amazing as big as they turn out to be that when they're little they can actually frolic and jump around and and that's the picture that Malachi is giving or God's giving through through Malachi. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, that was his last word. Now we're about to see his first word in over 400 years to Israel, and it's going to sound very familiar to us because we just read it. We just read it. So, having been silent, 
We look at the 78th verse of this first chapter, and that's why we will not get through with Luke until three years from now, because some of his chapters have over 70 verses. But look at verse 78 of chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Exactly what he said in Malachi 4 is now coming to fruition. We see that in Malachi and we see it in a previous word in the book of Isaiah in the 40th chapter and in verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Who's he talking about? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Who's Isaiah writing about? A voice of one calling in the wilderness. He's writing about John. The Baptist, and then who is the one who is coming, announced by John? It is the Christ himself, the Messiah. It is Jesus. And Brother Handel did us a great favor when he wrote a great um, oratorio. That's not the right word, is it? Uh, Whatever the musical term is for what the Handel's Messiah. So did you know? You know this, don't you? Every word of Handel's Messiah is from Scripture. Every word of it. Handel didn't make up any words. It all comes from Scripture. So I I heard one of my pastors years ago say, Handel's Messiah is inspired of God. I thought, whoa, well, that's a big thing to say. But then he put me in my place by saying, because every word of it comes straight from the Bible. I said, yep, it is. Absolutely it is. Okay. We're, we're going to be introduced to the parents of John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, and that's Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, Zechariah even uh, sings a song that we will look at in a little bit called Benedictus. Uh, also, we will find in um, this first couple of chapters, someone else sings a song. Who's that? That's Mary, Mary's song. Yes, so we'll get to that. Beautiful, beautiful. So Zechariah's song that I looked at, part of that is chapter 1, verse 78, what he said there. In fact, his song begins with verse 67 and goes all the way through verse 79. There's a haunting metaphor in the text of that song. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. He's speaking of the Messiah. He is singing of the birth of the Messiah. The night before the sunrise has been long and dark. 400 years, the silence of God. But the night is about to end. After 400 years, God speaks. The sunrise is here. Now the setting for the text beginning with verse 5 is that of the temple in Jerusalem. Historian Josephus describes the temple at length, but let me share one paragraph of Josephus' writing. He lived 
then and saw it himself. The building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. That's just a brief description, part of Josephus, of the temple. And that is the setting that we find here as we begin Luke 1.5. So let's meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. And first we'll look at verses 5 through 7. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, as we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, we immediately know from the text that we are being introduced to an extraordinary couple. The description lets us know that these are Two servants of God who, who, uh, who, who love, passionately love God and are seeking to serve Him faithfully and are blameless in all their ways. Doesn't mean that they are sinless. We know better than that. But, but it means that as a lifestyle, day to day living, they are almost without equal. Zechariah and Elizabeth, extraordinary couple. Herod the Great, Rule Judea. That's the Herod that's mentioned here. Herod the Great. He's not great because he was good. I assure you of that. But he was great for his transformation of the land during his reign from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was a builder extraordinaire. Very few like him in all of history. The last temple the one destroyed in 70 A.D. and not rebuilt, Herod's temple. Herod's temple. If you go today to Israel, you can find, if you go way down deep underground, you can find the remains, some of the remains, some of the stones from Solomon's temple, but you can be above ground and see the remains, some of the remains of Herod's Temple, and it is fascinating. The size, the immensity of the stones are just defy belief. As we come to this text, we are near the end of Herod's reign. We believe this is a set about 6 BC, and he will die in 4 BC, so we are in the last days of the reign of, of, of Herod. Zechariah is a priest. Historically, he would have been one of about 8,000 priests in Judea at that time. And the priests were divided by an arrangement that dates all the way back a 1,000 years 
to the time of David. That's when the priestly divisions were made. There were 24 divisions of priests, each division having in the neighborhood of 300 priests. And then there were others who were over them that gets it up to the 8,000 numerically. Zechariah was in the division of Abijah. So Luke is very specific in his detail as he writes. Just like a historian, very detailed. Each division of priests would have served in Jerusalem five times a year. Wherever they came from in Judea, they would have served in Jerusalem five times a year. Three of those times would have been during the week of of the great Jewish feasts. And then they would have had two other times when their particular division of priests would have served uh, at the the temple. Now, they would draw lots when it was their division. For instance, when it was his division's time to serve their week, they would draw lots to see who would go into the sanctuary of the Lord on a a particular day and carry out the, the, the priestly responsibilities. And it was something that you would only do once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. So, we're going to find that it is Zechariah's turn to go into the sanctuary. And so, what an electric moment that must have been for Zechariah and how his heart must have raced with excitement. But first, we see the man and his wife. They're both descendants of priests. Elizabeth from the priestly uh, tribe of Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses. They are both righteous in the sight of God. They're both obedient and faithful. But in spite of their obedience, in the thinking of the day, they were childless. I say in spite of their obedience. Because the expectation would have been if you are obedient to God, you'll have kids. God will bless you with children. In spite of their obedience, they were childless, not blessed by God with children. Now they're old, and childbearing is no longer possible. Bear with me, if you were here Sunday, you heard this, so I'm going to put it up here again. Can you see it? But God, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. How many times in Scripture do we see what appears to be an absolute impossibility until the Scripture says, but God? It's not possible for Elizabeth and Zechariah to have children, but God. God intervenes because God has a plan and a purpose. Being childless in ancient Israel was considered a disgrace. In the first chapter, when we get to verse 25, you'll see that Elizabeth calls it a reproach because she'll say, my reproach has been removed from me because of of the baby. It was considered to be a, a reproach. 
And so perhaps Elizabeth and Zechariah wondered, as no doubt did others around them, if they had sinned against God in some way that was so bad that God was punishing them by not allowing them to have children. That would have been the thinking of, of the day. But the truth is, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been faithful in the eyes of God, and God is about to do something that was considered to be an impossibility. But God. When you face a situation and you know you're heading the way God wants you to go, you're being obedient, you're doing what God wants you to do, and you look at it and you say, this is impossible, I can't do it, I just can't do it. Remember, but God. God has a plan, God has a purpose, and he will see you through. So, let's read about the stunning event. I think we can get through this pretty much. Verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He will come and prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. So let's think about this stunning event. The greatest moment in Zechariah's professional life, has come. There were some priests who never, ever got to do what he is about to do. They served as faithful priests for their entire adult lives, but the lots never fell on them. They never got to do what Zechariah is about to do. He must have, uh, as he walked, as he entered into the sanctuary, he must have taken in every detail so that he could later tell Elizabeth all about it. Before him rose the beautiful curtain of the Holy of Holies, resplendent in scarlet, blue, purple, and gold. To his left, the table of the showbread. In front of him, the horned golden altar of incense. To his right, the golden candlestick. He purified the altar and waited joyously for the signal to offer the incense so that as it were, the sacrifices went up to God 
wrapped in the sweet incense of prayer. Outside, the people pray, and they wait for him to come out and bless them. This is a moment Zechariah has dreamed of, hoped for, and anticipated all of his professional life. He can hardly contain his emotions. Can you imagine getting to do something and you see what he saw? He can hardly contain his emotions in this incredible once-in-a-lifetime moment. Suddenly, his heart may have skipped a beat or two or three. He sees an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar. The angel's appearance was so dramatic that extreme fear came over Zechariah. I bet all of us can identify with that. In the Bible, when angels appear, they do not bring warm, fuzzy feelings to those to whom they appear. Zechariah needs comforting. He is scared. The angel gives him a startling, unexpected prophecy. Your prayers have been heard by God. The prayers that you and Elizabeth have offered for a child. You and Elizabeth will have a son. You're to name him John, Johanna. God has been gracious is the meaning of the name. Zechariah means the Lord has remembered. Isn't that appropriate? And Elizabeth's name is, my God is abundance. How perfect. Joy and delight. Many will be blessed by your son. He will be great in the sight of God. In fact, Jesus would later say, no one born to woman is greater than John the Baptist. He's a Nazarite. He'll be a Nazarite. No alcohol. Righteous living, devoted totally to God, filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth, and His fullness will be the Holy Spirit. And so, His earthly ministry, says in verses 16 and 17, will revolutionize homes and family relationships in Israel. By the thousands, they will come to see and hear Him and repent And be baptized like the ministry of Elijah. So the ministry of John the Baptist. The angel speaks of John's character. He speaks of his spiritual formation, his his character before God, his spiritual formation as a Nazarite, and his ministry which will shake a nation. So next week, We're going to pick up at verse 18, and we're going to see how positive and excited Zechariah is about what the angel has told him, right? Zechariah's response is profoundly disappointing, profoundly disappointing, and he is about to be chastised. Now, sometimes you read the text in English, doesn't look like all that big a deal, but let me tell you that what the angel said to Zechariah was intended to be and was a severe chastising word. So we'll pick that up 
next time at verse 18 of chapter 1. Father, we marvel at all of your deeds. We are amazed at how you put everything together. We are amazed at your plan that sent your Son to die on the cross for our sin, to arise from the grave that we might have eternal life. We are amazed that you love us and care for us that much. And we are thankful for the way in which your name is glorified in Jesus and in what Jesus has done for us. And so I ask that this afternoon as we think about these things and reflect upon these things, that we will live for the glory of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.